And it is Friday, so it is nice. I'm assuming nobody has like deadlines to get back to this afternoon, which is always, maybe, <laughs> maybe some people do. All right, cool. Well, we are at the entrance to the wildlife um, reserve here at Sepulveda Basin. And it's really kind of interesting how the wildlife reserve formed. Mark had mentioned during the program that of the 2,000 acres of the basin in the 1950s, the city of Los Angeles started leasing some of the land. Those early uses were very recreation heavy, like golf. Um, there's a flight field where you can fly model airplanes. Nobody was thinking about the basin for, the, for decades in terms of habitat and wildlife. And in fact, what happened is kind of accidental after the Silmar earthquake, um, um, they took clay from the basin to fix the lower Van Norman Dam and created some like holes here where they had borrowed that clay because it's a very clayey soil here and to fix that dam. And then after that, those potholes basically started to fill with water and the birds loved it. They were like, this is the best thing. And so that was the 1970s. And so we owe what are the present day wildlife reserves to some really forward thinking environmentalists in the 1970s who were like, there's something good going on here. And yes, that was an accidental start, but um, there's more to the Sepulveda Basin than just, um, just recreation. We love the recreation too, but there's more than that. And that's how we have ended up uh, with the wildlife reserve. So we'll maybe we'll do like a guided thing to like the first sort of stop and look out. And then people that want to spend more time this afternoon, you can walk the whole loop. Probably takes about 30 to 40 minutes. So if you're just here and enjoying the weather, highly recommend. Um, and we'll keep walking and talking. Um, here on this side, this is Haskell Creek. Um, it is heavily channelized, although it is vegetated and soft bottomed. Um, comes into the basin. There are several tributaries, Haskell, Havenhurst, Encino Creek, um, Bull Creek, and the Velodrome Creek. I'm probably missing one that come into Sepulveda Basin and flow into the river here. Um, this creek, like I mentioned, um, has nesting uh, Lee spells vireo usually in the spring months, um, which is an endangered species that we really want to see succeed. Um, after a rainfall event like we just had yesterday, you can see the trash really builds up, which is a very unfortunate thing that actually a lot of people are working, a lot of smart brains are trying to figure out how to get trash out of our watershed. But when it rains hard, every single piece of trash on our streets and everywhere runs into the water and then it gets caught on native habitat like this, which is not great. So um, you can see that happening over here. A lot of the species around us are native along this walk and um, there are a couple of groups of volunteers that actually help to um, plant and weed this area. Um, you will see some invasive species, um, species that sort of take over. Um, there's a lot of mustard out here, which is a non-native that can kind of take over um, unfortunately. And we get a lot of pictures actually from people that say like, oh, look, the fields of Sepulveda are yellow and beautiful. Like this happens like in the spring, or late summer, the spring to summer. And you're like, yeah, that maybe looks great, but it's not great for our, our wildlife. Uh, it doesn't have a good value for them. But generally speaking, there's a lot of um, good stuff around here. Um, we have native trees, um, willows, a lot of sycamores along here and other species in the undergrowth. Um, but it could be a little bit better. So one of the things that, for example, the city is looking at is a revitalization project for the reserve. Um, it's been a while since it had a significant investment. Um, I'll pause for a second. By the way, if you have questions along the way and you wanna like 
nerd out about something, let me know. Or Kat, who's back there, that I think some of you guys know, she, has the, she is like brilliant when it comes to native plants and native ecosystems. So like you can grab her on the site too, and she'll be able to answer those. Um, a lot of things happen out here, um, a lot of kids' school trips. Um, the Audubon Society of the San Fernando Valley does some really cool stuff. So you can always participate with some of those groups if you want to spend more time out here. If you're a birder and you want to get out here at like 6 in the morning, go for it. There is like groups that do that and you can join as well. Pretty exciting stuff. Um, and then there's a series of different overlooks and stops along here. So we'll pull off here to the left. I don't know how my like walking tour skills are. Is this okay? Okay. <laughs> Oh, good, there's some ducks. We'll try not to scare them. The I'll go this way. Oh, there's a pelican out there, too. Great. Try not to scare everything. Oh, you know your birds, man. So the wildlife lake here, um, depending on the time of day, especially if you come out in the early morning, you can see a lot of stuff out here, a lot of birds. There's like a family of ducks hanging out over here. They look like they're having a nice time. Um, the middle island out there has like a rookery on it. Um, you can't access the island. That is very much so saved for the birds and um, the species. I will say that February 1st, is that what it is? The second. second. Oh, second is now the second. February 2nd maybe is not the um, uh, most I don't want to say most beautiful because there is beauty in this landscape. But if you come out through the different seasons, you will see different types of beauty. Um, so like in the spring, you'll see a lot of things that start to come into bloom, especially after the rains that we're gonna ha we have. Um, and then you'll start to see the trees leaf out. And you can see a couple of other projects that um, groups like the Audubon Society are working with recreation and parks on. For example, um, some of the trees that are dead. Um, there was a fire, unfortunately, here um, in 20. 20 um, and so that fire actually hurt a lot of the, the wildlife reserve but after that one of the natural things we were talking about fire prep uh, fire and that is a natural process earlier some of those trees that were burned during that have actually been kept purposefully as snags um, that makes good habitat for for birds and also um, part of our like ecosystem as it as it um, breaks down thank you thinking of the word all this pressure from everybody with the tour I um, so anyway, so those have been kept since the fire and um, with some like trimming for safety and stuff over the paths, um, but that's intentional. And again, uh, the lake here is home to a lot of, of water, waterfowl. Um, if any of you do like um, iNaturalist and you have like that app on your phone, um, if you go in, you will see that like this lake zone is a hot spot of people seeing and identifying different species, which is really cool. And if you don't know what iNaturalist is, Later, this afternoon, when you get home, you can download the app on your phone, and it allows you to document where you're seeing different species, but also to see what other people have documented. It's really an interesting way to engage in community science. And then um, scientists that are collecting data can then see those public records to be able to like also inform their science. Um, there are a couple of issues with this lake. Um, unfortunately, people, um, like, have you ever, did anybody ever, like, buy a goldfish or a fish and then decide, or like a little turtle, 
for your like tiny little tank and it got to a size and you're like, oh, where do I put this now? Unfortunately, a lot of people think that the wildlife reserve is a great place for like the fish tank fish and turtles that they don't want anymore. Please don't do that. Like that's no good. Um, and so unfortunately, in terms of the species cross section of here, uh, there are some kind of things that in the native environment wouldn't be there. Um, and it kind of starts to cause a couple of issues with, with that, with the, the water over here. Um, if you do choose to walk the whole loop, you can walk to the south end and you will actually see where this lake overflows into the Los Angeles River. Um, there's a little weir there. So I think some of the student groups participated in a tour this morning at Tillman. So the water that is treated there helps supply water to this lake, as well as Balboa Lake. They might have mentioned that, but that's why um, this lake has water year-round. The level fluctuates a little bit, but that water is always here. And then after it moves through this lake, it, flo it flows into the Los Angeles River as that discharge. Um, this is the North Reserve. The area just to the west of here would be called the West Reserve, and then to the south would be called the South Reserve. Um, and all three of those areas are really part of this uh, habitat area. Some of them you'll see are in better shape than others, which is part of why the city is looking at uh, what investments are appropriate uh, to really bring some of these areas up to speed. Does anybody have any questions here? Yes. Exactly. Yep. So this flows into Haskell, and then Haskell flows into the LA River. Exactly. You know your stuff around here. Uh, yeah, I know your favorite route. Great. Yeah. Great. Yes. Is there like some wildfires that broke out a few years ago yep. that like closed they closed certain sections? Yes. Exactly. So there there are wildfires in the basin. Um, and the Resource Conservation District has been doing a study of those fires, and it's really interesting. Ma the majority of them start within something like a thousand feet of the interchange over here between the 405 and Burbank Boulevard. So this area is really susceptible to some of those fire starts. They start for different reasons, accidentally usually, um, I, I, I hope. Um, but they start sometimes if somebody's trying to make a fire. Um, there are some encampments sometimes where that happens. There's also a model airplane field over here that every so often if one of them crashes, it can start a fire if it's particularly dry. Um, so there have been some accidental fires that have started through the years um, in the wildlife preserve. In 2020, actually I think it was during, one, I can't remember which month of 2020, but you remember the, those pandemic months that were like the deepest, darkest pandemic months? There was also a wildfire out here. So it's sort of like that layering of all the things that were seemingly you know, wrong in the world at the same time were happening. Um, so that does occur. Um, you know, fire is not, not necessarily bad in an ecosystem. There are fires that can rejuvenate and, and help. Um, in a managed area like this, it's really tough when an accidental fire breaks out that isn't um, you know, purposefully managed in a way to help the habitat. Great question. Anybody else a question or two before we? And then I'll stop talking and let people like actually enjoy this beautiful, like it's become a really beautiful day out here. What's that? Oh, the app that I mentioned is called iNaturalist. Um, and if you look that up, Kat, you just look up iNaturalist, yeah, right? It's a little I and then a big N, naturalist. Yeah. And I, I just want to say, please. Wait, 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 wait. This is your public service announcement for the day. Uh, please actually do download iNaturalist because as someone who needs to know a lot about the ecology in Los Angeles by serving as the city's urban ecologist, I rely on that kind of open source and crowd source data. Um, it's very, very difficult to understand what plants and animals are here when a lot of it is on private property. So we can't send 
groups of scientists or researchers into your backyard or onto your balcony to know what's up. So the more that you can be logging in, any observations that you're seeing, whether you're at your home, whether you're in transit somewhere, uh, whether you're going to another location, please, 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 that is an amazing platform. If you're really into birding too and you like to get your bird on a lot, um, eBird is another great site that you can be using um, to also log things in. And if you want uh, identification too, Merlin is one that you can then help identify what the bird is before plugging it in. But iNaturalist goes both ways too, and that's why I want to plug it because um, you don't necessarily have to be an expert. You don't need to know what plant it is or what animal. It's also a mechanism for you to learn about it as well. So you can snap a photo of something and based on AI technology, it pretty much lets you know what that is. So, um, and then there's a team of amazing, amazing knowledgeable scientists that go on in a regular basis and actually check to make sure that what it is that you're snapping a photo of, what it is that the computer is guessing it is or maybe knowing it is, is actually what it is. So um, again, you know, it's an amazing, amazing tool because then, uh, you know, I get to go into those, the treasure troves of those databases and be able to pull information and, um, you know, lace that into then plans, policies, and projects that are happening in a place like LA. So heck yes for iNaturalist and for eBird, please, please, please. It's also a fun activity, like if you want to get a group of friends together and see, like we did a bio blitz out here with um, student groups where we said like who could find the most in like an hour. Um, so if you need like, you know, a Saturday activity with a group of friends, highly recommend. Um, you had a question. I was just curious to know more about when this plant takes to bud. Like, oh. like how often does that happen and kind of yeah. what does it look like? Where is exactly the water coming from? So it's just a question of like whether that was in those most recent colors or most hmm. Sure. Yeah, those are great questions. Um, okay, so the first question is like, what happens like when it floods? What parts of this flood, and how often, and what does that look like? So um, when it rains really hard in LA and water starts to run off really fast, the upper 200 square uh, miles of the watershed that is upstream along the LA River here, which includes part of the valley, um, up into Simi Valley a little, not quite to Simi Valley, but up into the hills. Um, in this area, all drains through this tiny little nozzle here at Sepulveda Basin. Sepulveda Basin Dam actually operates incredibly efficiently. We can all, if you live in LA and downstream of here, you can thank the dam for, if it weren't there over the last hundred years, you would have seen a lot more flooding downstream of here. Um, what happens is as water flows, it starts to stack, like Mark was saying, and the basin can hold somewhere between 17 and 18,000 acre feet of water in a large storm event. Um, when we get an event like yesterday or what we're going to probably see this next week, what you would likely see is water, you know, flows in and it starts to build up closest to the dam first. So like the South Preserve area and um, some of the area that's just on the west side of here of Haskell Creek starts to build up and then the creeks start to back up. Um, these storms that we're getting like right now in sequence where it's a couple of inches of rain, the likelihood where we're standing would be very moist, but probably not like under a bunch of water. Where it does start to back up first is actually Burbank Boulevard. So if, you've, if you live around here, you know that Burbank Boulevard gets closed uh, to traffic pretty early in a rain event so that people aren't in danger. Like every time it rains, there's some sort of swift water rescue along Burbank because people are told, don't drive through moving water, but everybody is like, ah, I have the one car that can drive through moving water. I promise you don't. Um, and so then, you know, the fire and rescue is out here helping people. Um, here's a helicopter. 
Um, if it were a hundred year event, like a, what we call colloquially a hundred year, it's actually a 1% storm. There's a 1% chance of that happening in any given year. The water, if you look at this gravel over here along the levee, imagine that a few feet from the top of that was just filled with water. It would be conceivable that you could be standing underwater here. We have not had a storm that big in several decades, um, which makes sense because percentage-wise, these don't occur every year. Um, but we have seen really big storms in Sepulveda Basin that have inundated uh, this area. I wouldn't expect any that we've gotten this year to hit that mark. Um, when um, in, the in the 90s, there were some big ones, exactly. Helicopter the... Hel a helicopter with some people out to rescue, yeah. Yeah, and one of the things that's really interesting that a lot of people don't understand about the LA River is it's, it's fast, right? It's really flashy. Because of the steepness of our slopes and how much concrete we have, water moves quick. So when it starts to rain, what we call the time of concentration or how fast it gets for a drop of rainfall to get from the furthest part of the watershed to that dam can be really fast. And so you could just be hanging out here on a normal day, having a good time. And if like it starts raining and you get a few inches of rain, you could suddenly be under, you know, some, so there's, there is a real reason why there, you know, have historically been concerns around the safety of the LA River and how, how we manage that. Um, does that help to answer the flood question? And then the second part was, what is sort of the design idea here? So the reserve, the goal here is to not change the layout significantly, not change the systems. We do have a habitat here that is, that is intact to some extent. It could use some love. But it's not, um, like we don't want to disturb the birds and species that are using it to, like we wouldn't like scrape all of this off to start fresh because that would really disturb their habitat. So in this area, the idea is to, to you know, fix things that are broken, get invasive species out, plant new native species, and, and really help to, to build that up. Now as we move into the West Reserve, which is covered in like invasive species on the other side of Haskell Creek, it's a different approach, right? Like to really get those seeds out of that soil, like it really does need to be taken down. Like it's just covered in mustard. And so it needs to be like taken down. It needs to be regraded. It needs to um, um, then be replanted with a, a native habitat. And then it needs to be actively managed for at least a decade before um, those species will really, the, the natural native species will take hold and, and make it a little easier. So that's sort of active watching of our native habitat to get it established. Um, in some of the other areas of the basin, the changes I think are more substantial. So like along the river right now, the river is about 300 to 400 feet wide along the mainstream. What the river really wants, what the water wants, is to be about 800 feet wide. And so the idea there is to literally pull the banks back by about double and to create space for the water to move more freely, um, to have a more natural sediment process and a more natural relationship between the river and the floodplain. Um, so that's like a place where you'd see more significant change. And then some of the other significant changes that the city is looking at, which uh, I'll just say is like, it's really kind of hard to access the basin. I bet pretty much everybody here came in some sort of car today um, because kind of the only way in some ways to get here. And so access to the basin through the public transit system, through the gateways into the basin, signage, things like that. Some of those resources that would help make the edges feel a little bit more porous to the community. Um, a lot of the communities to the north of here 
um, have historically and presently um, are communities that are, that are more vulnerable in terms of everything from heat island, urban heat island effect, where it's just getting so hot in the valley, um, to air quality, um, lack of shade con connectivity in the canopies of their trees, um, and then also, um, you know, just generally lower income communities as we move more this way in the valley, wealthier communities as we move towards the hills here. And so, how do we break down those barriers to get to the park and access the park? I think that north edge is where you would see in the next 10 to 15 years the most significant looking different changes. Like here in 10 years, ideally you come and it still looks like a great habitat, maybe a little nicer, but like still is here and it looks a lot like this. Whereas other areas you might come and be like, whoa, there's a whole new mobility gateway here where you know the public transit comes in. Now I can rent a bike and things like that. Cool. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. So the question was about like the heat and and how that affects things. And it's true. So w when, it, when it gets super hot, which the valley is getting hotter, as Miguel said earlier, um, the you know the pavement, other things really absorb that and cause what we call urban heat island effect. And some of the areas uh, around the basin are some of the worst areas in like the city of LA around urban heat because the valley gets hotter, has a lot of concrete, a lot of uh, low density residential and not as much um, shade canopy cover. Um, so that happens. And so then you get those superheated things that also can heat up the water in our channels pretty significantly. And especially since a lot of the channels are concrete, um, we get this superheated water effect, which is really hard on wildlife. Like, if you're going to like go swimming or get in a hot tub, you're probably like loving like a pool that's like 85 or 95 degrees. You're like, oh, this is so comfortable for me. But that's not great for like fish and other wildlife. They actually want water to generally be cooler. And so when we get these superheated channels, like you said, it's really hard on wildlife. So more vegetation, more shade, more freedom for, for the rivers and the creeks to move. And what we're calling this sort of riparian is a big word that uh, scientists and landscape architects use, but it's basically that vegetation along the waterway. Widening that band of riparian vegetation is really important to help keep keep that water cool. Yeah. Um, so everyone, thanks for walking all the way over here with us. I think we are going to disperse from here. We're going to get our students back to school. I think the folks who came on the other bus 